a leaky gut, and the controversy over counting the planets. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Space travel could cause a leaky gut. A new medical study found that microgravity reduces an important barrier in the stomach, which could mean nasty germs could get inside astronauts' bodies on deep space missions. We'll chat with UC Riverside medical researcher Dr. Declan McColl about the gut biomes of astronauts and how his research can help all of our guts down here on Earth. Then, how do you count the planets? When I was learning them in elementary school, there were nine. But now the answer to how many planets there are isn't a simple one. On this week's I'd Like to Know segment, we'll talk to our panel of planetary experts about the task of counting the planets and the controversies surrounding their definitions. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? But first, let's take a look at the space news stories making headlines. NASA is welcoming 11 new astronauts to its ranks who are now eligible for missions to the space station, the moon, or even Mars. They're called the Turtle Class, and they were selected from a record number of 18,000 astronaut applications. After completing two years of basic training, the five women and six men joined the agency during its Artemis program, aimed at returning humans to the surface of the moon. Newly pinned astronaut Jessica Watkins says the group is made up of experts from many fields of academia, like medicine, geology, and engineering. The diversity of, of the team, both the turtles in particular, as well as the larger NASA team, um, is really speaks to all of the skill sets that are necessary to accomplish hard things. Two Canadian astronauts also trained alongside the American recruits. NASA now has 48 active astronauts and says it could open the application process for another round of candidates this spring. Those astronauts could one day hitch a ride to space on one of NASA's commercial crew partners. And one of those partners, SpaceX, is inching closer to sending its first human passengers into orbit. The private company is targeting a critical test Saturday of its Crew Dragon capsule. Shortly after liftoff, the capsule's abort engines will fire, simulating an emergency escape of the crew. If all goes well, the next step for SpaceX is launching humans to the station. NASA astronauts Bob Benkin and Doug Hurley, a milestone the company wants to hit this year. We'll live stream the test mission on our Facebook page to search for Are We There Yet? podcast. And you can stay up to date on the latest space news. Visit our website, wmfe.org slash space. And give me a follow on Twitter for the latest space news. I'm at SpaceBrendan. Our guts have a protective layer of cells that keep bad stuff from getting into our systems. Medical researcher Dr. Declan McColl found that microgravity could affect that protective barrier. That's not good for astronauts spending an extended period of time in space, like on a mission to Mars. So just how bad is a leaky gut? And what are scientists doing to protect astronauts from nasty bugs getting into their systems? Dr. McColl begins the conversation answering my question, what the heck is a leaky gut anyways? Yeah, that's more of a colloquial term, <laughs> okay. which you'll see <laughs> online, um, which sounds a lot more drastic than what actually happens. Um, so we have a single layer of cells that line the gut, and one of the functions of those cells is to form, uh, in effect, a barrier. Um, and so that's to keep good things in and keep bad things out. Um so this barrier is important for um, absorbing uh, fluids, nutrients, but also keeping 
the bacteria that live in our gut or microbiome uh, from freely uh, entering the body um, because you know if you get a breakdown of the barrier bacteria get in that can lead to sepsis uh, which obviously is very serious mm-hmm. so um, it's important that these cells that line the gut are able to uh, maintain the appropriate compartments, as it were. So mm-hmm. keep things in their place. So it sounds like these epithelial cells are like gut bouncers, right? Letting the right things through? Yes, yeah, that's a that's a really nice analogy. Yeah. So, Declan, what did you discover then? Um, so this is obviously a, a normal gut bacteria, and these epithelial cells um, kind of work to keep things from getting where they shouldn't be. Uh, but your study looked at um, what happens in microgravity, and what did you find? Well, uh, our key findings were that um, after time spent in microgravity, uh, this causes a a very subtle uh, change in the way that the barrier forms. Um, So this is consistent with um, other studies, uh, both in astronauts and with other model systems, that there isn't a major breakdown uh, of the barrier, um, just in after time spent in microgravity. But where it gets really interesting is when you challenge these cells that have been in microgravity with something that we know can cause a barrier defect or a leaky gut. Um, And so the agent that we chose was alcohol. Um, And in particular, uh, the most active metabolite of alcohol. And so we found that the cells that had been in microgravity were much more susceptible to a barrier defect when exposed to alcohol than cells that remained under control conditions. So that was our first key finding, that in response to a challenge uh, that these cells are more vulnerable. Uh, The second key finding was that um, we identified that up to 14 days after removal from the microgravity environment that this susceptibility uh, was preserved. Um, so that was that was really significant because it indicated that um, even when you're no longer in that environment, you're still vulnerable to agents that can cause a barrier defect. So I could see this as being uh, definitely a challenge for long-term spaceflight, right? Mm-hmm. So long-term yeah. time in microgravity. And then when those folks get to where they're going and they're still not in a microgravity environment anymore, you're saying that they're still susceptible to this epithelial barrier breakdown and bad things can get into their system? Exactly, yeah. It's, um, it, it's again, kind of the conditions have to be right, sort of the timing uh, to get this perfect storm of a uh, susceptibility in the barrier and being exposed to something, whether it be a foodborne bacterium, uh, such as salmonella, for example, that can cause a barrier defect or uh, other chemical or ingested agents. Um, so it's it's not going to be a case that everyone would get a barrier defect, uh, but rather if they were then exposed to a particular agent that can uh, cause a barrier defect, cause intestinal inflammation, um, that they would then be uh, quite vulnerable. You mentioned like salmonella would be something um, mm-hmm. that that the these people would be susceptible to. What are some other bad things uh, that could happen when this barrier breaks down? Well, uh, the barrier is also required for um, maintaining what are called the chemical gradients to allow you to absorb nutrients uh, from food and to absorb water. 
Um, so what you can also get is, um, say, leakage, a passive leakage of fluid uh, from the blood side of the intestine into what we call the lumen side, and then you lose fluid uh, and electrolytes in the form of diarrhea. Um, so you'd have more difficulty in sort of regulating fluid levels in the body, and um, it's well known that time and space there's difficulty in regulating uh, fluid distribution in the body anyway, uh, so that, that is quite a complication, but there would be increased risk of, say, dehydration, um, and the downstream consequences of that. I mean, diarrhea and dehydration in space seems terrible, and that would not be fun for someone who is in a microgravity yeah. <laughs> environment, right? Particularly if you're trapped in a spacesuit, yes. Yeah, so um, you mentioned the agent that you used to, um, to kind of test this, um, which led to this breakdown of the structural um, buildup of the epithelial cells was alcohol. Are we, are we talking like, is this, you know, if I have a swig of whiskey or a beer while I'm in space, what kind of alcohol are we talking about here? <laughs> well, this was uh, purely the metabolite that derives from ethanol. So it, it would apply to, to all alcohols um, that, that one consumes. Um, so, so, yeah, so it, it wasn't uh, that we were adding uh, Guinness uh, to these cells or anything. What's what's ahead? Are you going to try other agents? What other agents um, could theoretically, or, or that we know, can break down this um, this mm-hmm. barrier wall? Yeah. So um, obviously, some of the the key ones that would one would think of would be uh, bacteria such as, as I mentioned, Salmonella, um, E. coli, um, and particular foodborne pathogens. Um, and I think this also relates to your earlier point about long-term missions, where one of the goals is to uh, be self-sufficient as regards growing food. Um, and of course, in that uh, entrapped environment um, for long periods, it does increase the risk of a foodborne uh, infection. Um, and I did listen to one of your earlier uh, podcasts where you had a very interesting discussion on keeping um space station for example clean uh, from mm-hmm. particular types of bacteria and uh, as one of your uh, colleagues mentioned uh, bacteria are very hardy um so they do survive in unexpected places so uh, bacteria would be the number one um potential uh, agent that would uh, lead to uh, gi distress effects uh, associated with barrier defects now i'm thinking about this as as a problem for long-term space flight. But now that you mention the ISS, is this something that our astronauts in low Earth orbit for short periods of time, for six, eight months in microgravity environment, that, that they need to be worried about as well? I think one way of interpreting uh, the findings are that um, during the period of readaptation, uh, when they come back down to Earth, uh, they may uh, be... be quite vulnerable to, um, say, a bacterial infection that would cause uh, GI distress. Um, So both during uh, the space flight and uh, during that period where they've landed back on Earth and are trying to readapt to the Earth's environment, um, that 
I think is is a time of some vulnerability. Now, Declan, um, how did you how did you study this? How did you mimic the uh, kind of microgravity environment uh, during um, this study? In my lab at UC Riverside, we uh, have a device called a rotating wall vessel, um, and that's a piece of equipment that was actually developed by NASA um, to essentially mimic a state of free fall. Um, and so in that in that way simulate a microgravity environment. So we cultured uh, intestinal epithelial cells um, on a small bead, uh, which gives them a substrate to attach to. Uh, and basically we rotate those in a, a medium, a liquid medium that uh, maintains them in a healthy state. And uh, they were then maintained uh, up to 18 days in this sort of microgravity um, uh, atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Well, with just the ground-based study, you've learned quite a bit about this, you know, function of of the gut epithelial cells, um, and and we now know the the risks. Is there any way to mitigate these risks? Um, any ideas of how you can prevent this kind of breakdown from happening? in microgravity to protect these astronauts on long-duration missions or even short-term missions? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, and I think it's, uh, that's probably where uh, a large part of the importance of this study lies with respect to NASA missions. Um, they like to know what potential problems lie ahead, uh, and they're very good at developing countermeasures um, to mitigate uh, the effects um, of potential uh, hazards. So there are certainly approaches uh, that one could take looking at effects of specific nutrients uh, on promoting uh, epithelial health, epithelial barrier well-being. Um, we ourselves have done some work with a beneficial bacterium uh, called probiotics uh, in promoting uh, the barrier. Um, so there are just a couple of aspects uh, that one might be able to investigate and potentially develop uh, as a countermeasure. You know, the longer I, I host this show and talk with experts um, like you in, in the medical field, I'm learning that, you know, the weakest link when it comes to leaving this planet and going to another planet is, is not our technology, but our human bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> do you think we're ever going to figure out a way to be able to, to deal with some of these things that come along with traveling through space and living in microgravity environments and being in reduced gravity environments? I mean, can we overcome this uh, as a species? Yeah, that's uh, the big question. Um, it, it's, uh, I think if one adopts the mindset that space is an extreme environment, uh, one can learn a lot from uh, studies in of physiology uh, of human health on Earth in other extreme environments, such as at high altitudes, um, extreme heat, extreme cold, etc. Um, and so there's potential opportunity there for uh, crosstalk and learning from uh, various adaptive mechanisms that have been uh, identified and studied um, with respect to uh, how the body does change, uh, either its expression of particular genes um, or behaviors uh, to try and cope with uh, other extreme environments. Um, so I think there's certainly a lot to be learned from um, basic studies in physiology that are, are being conducted by, by other groups with respect to extreme environments, and that can inform 
and help guide um, potentially developing countermeasures to uh, counteract uh, the space environment. And finally, Declan McCall, um, what kind of uh, usage do you think this uh, information will have, not for space travelers, uh, but for people living here on Earth? Is there any practical application to these research findings? Uh, Well, certainly um, one of the uh, sort of interesting points about uh, the way the body is affected in uh, space is that it mirrors a lot of the changes that occur during aging. Um, And so I touched on this in uh, my manuscript that uh, potentially this does offer a model system to study uh, aging uh, of gut epithelial cells Mm -hmm. um, and how that changes over time. Um, We do know that there is a decrease in the uh, strength of the the barrier with aging. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if one ties that into development of potential countermeasures uh, with respect to promoting the barrier during space travel, uh, that might have clear applicability to... um, benefiting or mitigating some of the effects of aging on intestinal function here on Earth. Oh, that's fascinating. I did not know that. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's you know, a, a lot of work has, has mainly focused on, say, cardiovascular effects, uh, skeletal muscle bone degradation mm-hmm. that occurs, and then NASA's done, you know, great work in developing countermeasures for uh, muscle atrophy, um, bone decay. So astronauts are all put on specialized exercise programs to mm. try and mitigate those effects. So um, so it, it's certainly they've got a, a lot of knowledge in how to try and address some of these uh, physiologic uh, consequences of being in, in the space environment. Um that have a applicability uh, here on Earth. So as we try to learn how to live farther away from our planet, we're learning how to live longer here at home. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Fa- fascinating. Well, we've, been, we've been speaking with Declan McCall. He's a professor of biomedical sciences at the UC Riverside School of Medicine. Declan, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure, Brandon. Thank you. Still to come, how many planets are there? The answer is not as simple as you may think. Our panel of planetary experts are here to bring us up to speed on the controversy of counting the planets. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. How do you count the planets? It sounds like a simple question, but it's a complex answer. When I was learning the planets in elementary school, there were nine. But now, to answer that question, it's not a very simple one. A controversy over the definition of Pluto has changed that number to some. On this week's I'd Like to Know segment, we'll talk to our panel of planetary experts about the task of counting the planets and the controversies surrounding the definitions. Those experts are Josh Caldwell, Jim Cooney, and Addie Dove. They're planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida, and they also host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. I begin the conversation asking Josh Caldwell, why have the number of planets changed since I was in elementary school some, well, many years ago? The number, well. <laughs> the number of planets hasn't changed since you were growing up, but uh, people like to shift their definitions. It's actually really interesting to go back historically and look at the number of planets sort of according to professional astronomers that sometimes it was greater than nine and then mm. it dropped back down just based on sort of people's consensus opinion about what gets that designation of planet. Yeah. Uh, like Ceres was a planet before Uranus. Right. The the original largest asteroids that were discovered were originally considered planets. Then somebody decided they're minor planets, and they mm. got named asteroids, which is even worse. Um, 
Pluto sure looks like a planet to me. Okay. Uh, and I'm sure there are other things out there that are planet-looking. And in fact, some of the moons would be planets in their own right if they didn't happen to also be orbiting mm-hmm. another planet, another which planet. then gets them designation of planet. So I, I personally prefer the term world Okay. Yeah. As a as a cool place to visit, you mm-hmm. know, a planet by any other name is mm-hmm. still a great place to send a spacecraft or an mm-hmm. astronaut. And uh, so the the current IAU definition, all this controversy that was sort of spawned by the New Horizons mission to to Pluto, is a little bit silly mm-hmm. in my opinion. And uh, the definition is a very sort of strange ad hoc combination of geophysics and right. orbital mechanics. Can you, can you briefly just remind us of that? Because the whole, is Pluto a planet was in pop culture around mm-hmm. New Horizons. What was what was the underlying issue with that? Well, my understanding is the underlying issue is which group of people got to name the features on Pluto that was dis- going to be discovered by mm-hmm. New Horizons. Was it the comet and asteroid people or the planet people? Okay. And so they had to, an argument. But what has happened since you were a kid is the discovery of lots and lots of objects in the outer solar system that are comparable in size to Pluto, one that at least that's a little bit bigger than Pluto in that region of the solar system. So then, Eris. Yes. That's the one, right? Yeah, that was discovered that's in the, the middle one. 90s. By mm-hmm. Mike and that really kicked off this, this problem, thing. right? Because if Pluto's a planet... Then so is Eris. Right. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, that bothered people. And I'm like, what's the problem? Why can't Eris just also the, be a planet? It didn't fit into the mnemonic device that I learned. Right. <laughs> well, the trouble why. is, if Eris is a planet, I mean, I, I agree with you that I think all these things should be planets as well. But if Eris is a planet, if Pluto is a planet, then Eris is a planet. If Eris is a planet, then Maki Maki is a planet. Then all these other things are planets. And you end up with not just 9, 10, 11. You end but up with 900. Dozens. Which, hundreds, which isn't a problem, right. except that it's hard to memorize that many planets. <laughs> yeah, right, but right. like, but so the, the good analogy that I've heard is that when we think about about it is like they're like bodies of water, right? And so we have a certain number of oceans that we call oceans, and then at some point you have lakes or seas, right? right? And so there's like sort of variations in how we call these big bodies of water, mm-hmm. um, and like where do you draw the line, and when is it a pond versus a puddle, and then things like right. that, right? So mm-hmm. and we don't memorize all of the different. We maybe memorize the big oceans, the biggest ones, but even some of the smaller seas we don't know, mm-hmm. right? So like it's one of those things where at some point it's it's just where we like to classify things or scientists. We like to put them in mm-hmm. these categories. But there's usually sort of a a, a spectrum a of things, a continuum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And who gets to do that? We we talked briefly about the Pluto and the IAU. Who is in charge of it, classifying these things? Well Is there the, one group? The, the the International Astronomical Union has bestowed upon itself the authority to name objects. Mm -hmm. The classification thing is different. There isn't really an authority that is recognized by people that says we're the authority that says this thing is a planet or whatever. That sort of comes about through consensus of the scientific community. Mm-hmm. And it was voted on by the IAU, and that's that's how we got the modern definition of planet was some big vote it, where a lot of planetary scientists were absent from that meeting. Yeah. Well, strangely. Uh, the vast majority of planetary scientists were absent right. from that meeting because most of them are not in the, even in the IAU. Right. So, so they voted, but that was on a resolution of how is the IAU going to treat the naming of things and what are the categories that things will fall into that will determine how things are named. And they don't get to define planet any more than we do uh-huh. uh, sitting in this room. Uh, so it's it's a little bit... I mean, 
planet, you know, so where, where do you really get definitions of things? In the dictionary. Yeah, <laughs> but, but the dictionary what takes it from... What does say about that? The dictionary <laughs> takes it from usage. It's how are people using the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I, I should, I'd be curious to look at the Oxford English Dictionary. I'm guessing that the planet definition is not parroting the IAU definition, but I'd be curious to take a look at it. What the IAU did was they said, okay, if you're small enough, you're, you're big enough to be round, but you're not so big at your location in the solar system to be the biggest mm-hmm. fish in that particular pond, then you're a dwarf planet. So that Which that, still has planet in the name. Right. <laughs> so that that made Pluto and Eris and the other Kuiper Belt objects we've discovered, as well as a bunch of asteroids series suddenly become dwarf planets. Uh, you ruffled know. some feathers, right? It did ruffle some feathers. <laughs> uh, the I noticed at the uh, scientific conference I was at last week for the I slow on the uptake that the logo for New Horizons is a nine sided. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh. oh yeah, yeah. I did not uh, notice that. And yeah. of course, that's just the planets in our own solar system. Yeah, so we so we don't have a consensus as to how many are in our solar system right now, right? Uh, uh, it depends who you talk to. I would say no. I would say that I'm on the Pluto as a planet. And, and so are a lot of other things. And so are a lot of other things that, and some of which have not yet been discovered. So, so there's dozens or hundreds. Gotcha. Yeah. What about outside our solar system? We're kind of in this golden age of, of exoplanet discovery. So exciting. Thousands of planets discovered around thousands of stars in our neighborhood of the galaxy. So mm-hmm. it's very, very interesting. Yeah. And one of the funny definitions of a planet, right, is that it orbits the sun. Right. So in that definition, it has to orbit the sun. So, none so of these all of these extrasolar <laughs> planets are not planets by this IAU definition. Yeah. Right. They are... Exoplanets. Exoplanets or something like that, right? So, yeah, so uh, there are, but there are thousands of other planets orbiting in in systems like ours, but actually not a lot like ours, it turns out, for some Mm -hmm. of them. And of Um, course, that's only the ones that we've found, you know, by, by, looking at what we found and comparing it to the number of things that are stars that are actually out there, I mean, there are probably a few trillion planets in our galaxy. That's insane. That is a lot of galaxies, a lot of planets. Yeah. And I mean, we we've just been actively looking for these active or for these exoplanets in in the past few decades, right? Right, right. And it's been an explosion of discovery thanks to advances in detection techniques. And what and one of the interesting things is most of the planets we've discovered are in sort of different classifications or categories than the ones in our own solar system. Mm-hmm. So you could run into new, confusing questions about how to define a planet. And you'll run into that at the large end of a planet. There's a sort of blurry line. Between a Jupiter and a... And a brown dwarf, dwarf which is sort of a failed star. And when do you call, is that a planet or is it a brown dwarf or is it a failed star? So at the... At the large end of the planet spectrum, you sort of blur into... I feel like they don't like to be called failed stars. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so. No offense intended. <laughs> well, no failed stars in here. We're with Addie Dove, Josh Caldwell, and Jim Cooney. They are planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida and hosts of the podcast, Walk About the Galaxy. Thank you all for being here. Thank yes. you. Be sure to check out their podcast. You can find it wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. If you've got a question for our segment, I'd like to know, send it in. Shoot me an email at arewetheryet at wmfe.org or find us on social media and drop your questions there. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Are We There Yet Podcast on Facebook or at A-E-W-T-Y Mars. Are We There Yet Mars? Get it. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. You can find more space news online at wmfe.org slash space. 
Never miss a show and get bonus content and interviews delivered straight to your smartphone or smart speaker. Subscribe to the Are We There Yet podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>